everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Mark White. I've got uh, Joe Lowry here and our special guest today, Lucius McGee. Um, we're going to talk about his book and all of the things that revolve around that. It's going to be a great time. We're sitting out on a beautiful patio right now doing the whole social distancing thing as we're recording this uh, kind of the mid part of July. So Memphis Reborn is the name of the book, uh, 1880 to 1886. And uh, Lucius, why don't you give us a couple of... Uh, moments about your background and what we can expect to hear today. Well, I'm a lifelong Memphian. I was uh, not born here, but I've lived here since I was four. My parents and grandparents were all born here. Uh, and uh, I'm a retired physician, so I've spent most of my life uh, in hospitals and um, medical practice. But I've always been interested in history and when I retired, uh, I got especially interested in uh, local history. I've always been uh, enamored of Memphis. I've never really wanted to live anyplace else. And uh, <clears throat> I started taking a few notes to correct my ignorance about Memphis history, and it just grew from there. And uh, um, I wrote a book. <laughs> as, as people do. Well, let's talk about that book. So Memphis Reborn, 1880 to 1886. Why those seven years out of all of our history? Why, what was so special about them, and they were special? Well, those were the years of our rebirth as a new modern city where people could hope to uh, live the year round and acquire property and raise their families. It wasn't like that before. Um, Memphis uh, in antebellum times was uh, uh, something of a, a, a like a boom and bust um, you know, mining camp almost. Uh, the only business was cotton and it was great business. Yeah. But uh, you could make your fortune and lose it very quickly in the cotton business. And there was no attention paid to sanitary measures, no efforts were made to uh, build up the civic community, uh, and uh, it was a, a lawless, uh, disorderly place. And in the 1870s, uh, like many places in the Gilded Age, <clears throat> Memphis had a fairly corrupt city government. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, that coincided with a, a terrible uh, financial panic in 1873 and what they still call the Long Depression. And bottom line, Memphis became uh, hopelessly bankrupt. And on top of that, uh, we had not one but three terrible yellow fever epidemics in the 70s and 73, 78 and then in an unprecedented way the very next year in 1879 which often isn't emphasized right. the 1878 was so much worse uh, but <clears throat> by the winter of 79-80 uh, Memphis was at uh, a low point that I don't think it has ever reached since, even in 68 after the King assassination. And a remarkable group of men, uh, Memphis capitalists, 
um, took the situation in hand and turned things around, um, cleaned up the city, uh, installed workable sewers, and refinanced the debt. And without those men and what they did, we would really not be here in the same way that we are now. Right, right. So you had mentioned some men there. Who were some of the, the more important uh, Memphians at that time? Well, I think uh, names that you have to mention are Dr. David Porter, the first president of the taxing district, uh, Luke Wright, uh, Minor Merriweather, George Gant, three brilliant lawyers who came up with the idea of the taxing district of Shelby County. And then, of course, you've got to mention two other very important figures, uh, David Park, Pappy Haddon, the president of the taxing district from 1882, a very colorful figure, and no Memphis history can fail to mention uh, Bob Church Sr., uh, the South's first black millionaire and probably one of the one or two most remarkable figures of the period. So you mentioned quite a bit about taxing districts and the fact that we had <coughs> almost insurmountable debt at that point. So is there a reason why we didn't just repudiate that debt or is there something behind that? Or Well, <coughs> um, Gerald Capers, uh, our first and most one of our more important historians of Memphis, uh, thought that the citizens probably did intend to repudiate the debt. Right. Uh, the protestations to the contrary notwithstanding, he says. Um, but um, the, the New York Times certainly thought that we intended to. Uh, there's a famous, uh, they editorialized that uh, Memphis, uh, no city uh, had ever sunk quite so low in financial infamy, they said. Uh, but um, the situation arose out of a very uh, unusual, well, a situation that no longer obtains, thank goodness. This was long before um, Chapter 9 municipal bankruptcy. And uh, when you are a creditor of uh, the city corporation, and it was a corporation, uh, an individual uh, subject to the writs of the courts, uh, if a creditor uh, presented his bill and it was not paid, then he went to court, either state court or federal court, and got what was called a mandamus, which was a writ of the court which mandated that the city officials uh, lay a tax to pay the debt. And of course with declining property values and uh, with two yellow fever epidemics we were in a vicious cycle of declining property values. Most people didn't have any property to attach. Their real estate could be sold for taxes but nobody was buying Memphis real estate. And so you were in a vicious cycle uh, that ultimately would have bankrupted any legitimate tax-paying business in town. Yeah. You mentioned that we hadn't had another epidemic of yellow fever after that. Why do you think that was? 1888, 89 maybe. Uh, nobody knows why we had another one. Uh, the only answer is that the mosquitoes here didn't carry yellow fever. It was just luck. Yeah. Um, 
they cleaned up the bayou. They cleaned up the streets. But we still had plenty of mosquitoes. Mm. It just didn't happen to carry you know, a yeah. fever. Yeah, we still had plenty of mosquitoes. Um, now, after artesian water became generally available, uh, people no longer had to use roof shed rainwater uh, from cisterns. And the cisterns were at ground level. Often they were under the house or very near the house. Um, before the sewers, they were also near the ironically named privy vaults. Yeah. And so Memphis was regularly visited by things like cholera and typhoid fever as well. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, uh, luck. Yeah, just luck. Yeah. Nobody knew about the mosquito, of course. Right. Except Carlos Finley in Cuba, who suspected, but he didn't know. Yeah. Well, as we sit here in 2020 with the pandemic going on, it's a it's an interesting topic to talk about. And you mentioned artesian wells earlier, and we found those around 1865 or so. Is that, is that 1887? No, that yeah. you you said earlier that by accident would Bowling Hughes was it was well the Bowling Hughes well was the signature well a big deal uh, that came in um, St. Patrick's Day 1887 Bowling Hughes was an ice company the Bowling Hughes Machine and Lake Ice Company and in the early days of course uh, before refrigeration technology ice had to be cut in the wintertime from frozen lakes Bowen Hughes had lakes in Indiana, and they would ship it downriver by boat and store it in ice houses, which were, there were two of them on the bluff. Uh, the biggest one was near the brewery. And, uh, but in the 1880s, many, many things were changing. And one of the big things that came in in the 1880s affecting not only Memphis, but places like Argentina and the whole world was refrigeration technology, so you could make ice with a machine. And um, so that was Bowling Hughes's business. And uh, they had to have water. And so they were interested in, in, uh, in, 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 a, in a, a usable source of clean water, which we did not have. Our water before the Bowling Hughes well came from the Wolf River. And uh, Captain, uh, James Lee Sr. called it nutritious. Uh, it was not always as uh, clean as might be hoped for in a perfect world. Let me, let me yeah. add something to this, and then this clarifies what, and this question comes up a lot, and these people say, oh, the Wolf River, and I gotta understand that in this period of time, there was nothing, there was no industry upstream, all it was was woods, and so you were getting runoff from forest land so all you were getting was silt and you weren't getting chemical pollutants and everything and just recently on Waterworks Avenue which runs west off of the, 10, off the 1000 block of 2nd Street used to be that's where the Waterworks was and many people were unaware of that but that's where the intakes were and the problems were you had so much silt they'd have to change the filters out every day so you got you got pretty decent water, but I'm sure that, that you, they were boiling at some point in time. I'm sure they were aerating, and I know they were having to clean the silt out. And with artesian, we didn't have to do that. How cool. 
Well, yeah, the artesian aquifer that we have here in Memphis is a, a, a pearl beyond price, and we ought to do everything we can to conserve it and treasure it. Um, but the interesting thing to me that I found out in my research for this book is the Bowlin Hughes well, which everybody knows about and uh, regards as our first artesian well, was not our first artesian well. Our first artesian well was drilled for um, the Memphis Natatorium, uh, which was a swimming pool, uh, a project of two young men who uh, uh, sold shares to the public. They hired uh, our English transplant architect, James B. Cook, one of our, he designed the, the fountain in Court Square, he built a uh, an extension to the Gayosa House, uh, many iconic things that no longer survive. Uh, but he was a, a, a very interesting man, and he uh, supervised the drilling of this well uh, for the natatorium. And no well in Memphis had ever been drilled uh, lower than about 300 feet. Um, and it was very expensive to drill these wells. The, the, uh, the driller for the natatorium charged $10,000, which is a tremendous amount of money in the 1880s. Um, but uh, they drill below 350 feet and uh, hit a vein of uh, crystal clear water, uh, which only in retrospect now we recognize as probably the first artesian well. They didn't know uh, at that time that they'd found an ocean of sweet artesian water under the city. Um, <laughs> ironically enough, uh, on the day that uh, the appeal reported the natatorium well, um, in two tiny little paragraphs in, um, in local paragraphs was a, was a lot of the local news, uh, that same day most of the ink was spilled explaining the new uh, water committee under the guidance of General Colton Green. Uh, and once the city debt was settled, once the city was sewered, and once the streets were on the way to being paved, uh, President Haddon's next project was to uh, secure a decent water supply. And so Green's water committee, very august, very important, um, recommended ultimately that the Wolf River be the source, but far upstream from where the waterworks of the Memphis Water Company were, which were upstream, but not all that upstream, from the Bayou Gayosa, which was at that point our cloaca maxima, uh, if you understand what I mean. And wasn't that far from waterworks. <laughs> it, it was upstream, but not very far upstream, yes. Okay. And uh, so the very same day, uh, that the appeal reported the uh, natatorium well was the day that President Haddon gave his instructions to Green's Water Committee, uh, which I've always thought was very um, ironic. It's hard to see something unless you already know what it is. Yeah, yeah well said. And, you know, the brewery, the dairies, yeah. have all had their own well. The brewery had its own well. The uh, the the historic Gayosa House, which was the, 
the pride of the city in antebellum times and the reason James B. Cook came to town to build an extension to the south. Um, by the 1880s had fallen on really hard times. It was a, it was a falling down a tenement, really, and uh, uh, of, of very ill repute. And it was taken in hand by another group of Memphis capitalists, including Napoleon Hill and uh, others. And they renovated it, and they drilled their own well. The, uh, the Memphis Steam Laundry, Jules Rozier's Steam Laundry, had its own well. So uh, the Bowling Hughes Company was not the only company that had its own well. And of course, once it became clear to everyone that we're sitting on top of a big sea of artesian water, uh, the Memphis Water Company uh, drilled wells, and a new water company was started, again with the backing of Napoleon Hill. He was the big money bags of town, among others. And uh, uh, eventually, um, ruinous competition being the bane of capitalists then, as it sometimes still is today, uh, the two water companies uh, combined and to form the Memphis Artesian Water Company. What year around was that, think? That was about 1887 okay. that they combined. Okay. Um, they were fighting it out as separate water companies. Uh, uh, a very interesting man named uh, Thomas Jefferson Latham was president of the water company. And he and President Haddon uh, were at odds constantly, uh, and also the, the, the water company was indicted by the criminal court on three occasions as a public nuisance for the bad water. And um, so they were always fighting, uh, and interestingly, Latham and Haddon were next door neighbors down on, uh, on Rayburn Street, now South Third. And I'm sh uh, they... they uh, Latham made a public statement that he did not believe it was his water company's responsibility to put pressure on the fire hydrants, and they were dealing with 20 and 30 pounds, which is nothing. So for years, standard procedure on the Memphis Fire Department was this. The first in engine takes the cistern. Yes. The second in engine takes the hydrant. So. And there were continual fights over maintaining fire pressure, as they called it. And uh, uh, there's an interesting article uh, that I talk about in the book a little bit that uh, Latham is apoplectic because uh, the night they had a big fire uh, one night and uh, the guy running the waterworks acceded to the request of the fire chief to ramp up the pressure uh, at, the, uh, at the hydrants and the boilers could have exploded. Uh, they two, just had two of the boilers were broken. That, that's that's correct. Yeah, it was kind of a famous episode. Um, but there was always a fight, uh, many fights with these the privately owned utilities, uh, the gas company, uh, the street railway was always at odds with Haddon because Haddon was always trying to get the street rail, railway to help with the paving. Uh, and. Uh, publicly owned utilities just were not a feature of, of that day and time. You know, for years we made our own gas here. The gas we, works. We, the gray gas works. At one time we had three gasometers in the city. 
that ran up and down inside a framework. Yeah. A gasometer is a fascinating thing. I I'd had no idea what they were before I uh, got into this, but it's like a, a giant wooden barrel. And it's surrounded by a circle of, of, uh, of poles. Framework. A framework of poles <laughs> that connected by chains. And gas was made by uh, heating coal. And so the president of the gas company was also the guy who uh, ran the, one of the big coal companies. And um, they would collect, the, it was called town gas, and it would collect it over water in this inverted barrel raised and lowered with chains by this uh, system. And these uh, things were big. They were huge. One of them was at the corner of Macklemore in Florida on the southwest corner. The other one was over on Salisbury and Tanglewood uh, over at Cooper Young. And the other one was at the gas company. Well, yeah, the, 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 the very first one, the big one, was uh, right where the bayou turns around to go into the Wolf River. Uh, between, I think, one of those North Memphis streets like Mill and 2nd Street something. or something like that. It was over in that area. And um, <laughs> the gas works were odiferous and unpleasant. And uh, there, was a <clears throat> there was a New York street gang named the Gas House Gang. Because, uh, and then the, uh, one, of the, one of the 1930s Cardinals baseball teams took the name of the Gas House Gang. So of all of the people that we've talked about in some, and I'm sure we haven't talked about in those six and seven years there, who do you think, and what's your opinion on the most important thing that happened then and the, some of the most important people of that time? Well, clearly the most important single event that happened for Memphis in those years was the discovery of artesian water. And whether you date it from 1885 or date it from 1887, uh, that's the reason that we didn't have, there were some more yellow fever scares after that, but once we got rid of subsurface cisterns, uh, I think that was a, a huge factor. And then of course later on when they discovered, uh, Walter Reed discovered that the mosquito was the vector of, of yellow fever, uh, that made all the difference uh, as well. Um, but there's so many wonderful, colorful characters, but uh, I've just got to say that I think uh, President Haddon uh, stands out. Um, he's known today, if he's ever talked about, uh, by the nickname conferred by his political enemies, Pappy Haddon. And it's true that uh, the common touch was his stock and trade. He was a good politician, um, but he was what, the... Wasn't he kind of a, a kind of a big guy, and wasn't he kind of a guy that you didn't really want to get in a fight with? <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Haddon is an interesting man. He was uh, um, he was uh, born in Kentucky and educated there uh, on a prosperous farm. He came from a, 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 a moneyed background and uh, lived first in Clarksville, Tennessee, uh, where he was a notary public and uh, joined the bar. In those days, you read law and called to the bar. There was no law school in those days, or maybe there was, but he didn't go to one. Most lawyers didn't. And uh, when the, uh, in a later 1888 biography, uh, he states that in the Civil War his um, 
sympathies were with the South, but I just have to say that he was not sympathetic enough to take up a musket or an officer's commission. Instead, he moved to Manhattan uh, and joined the staff of a very big and successful commission mercantile firm and learned the business. Made, and his middle name was Park, and the, the, the Civil War mayor of Memphis, uh, John Park, was his uncle. And one of his other uncles was a very successful cotton factor. And being a cotton factor was the way to wealth in Memphis, both in antebellum times and even more in the 1880s. And uh, if I get reincarnated, I want to come back as a cotton factor <laughs> because they could make money so many different ways that it was just a wonderful thing. <laughs> and uh, of course, Napoleon Hill is the most famous one, but uh, uh, David Haddon was also a very successful cotton factor. And um, uh, came back to Memphis right after the Civil War, went back into the cotton business and made a whole lot of money. He was a very um, committed mason and was uh, instrumental in uh, financing or, or rescuing the finances of the Masonic Temple, which is a beautiful building we used to have not far from Court Square on Madison, a second in Madison, uh, and uh, ran in the first election for the taxing district in 1882 for president and won, and held that post of the taxing district president from 1882 till 1890. Uh, and there are many, many stories about Haddon. Most uh, have to do with uh, the fact that he, in addition to being president of the taxing district, uh, was also uh, the magistrate of the police court, called the recorder's court. And uh, he was the Judge Judy of his day. He ran, he used to open court every, every morning at 9 a.m. with uh, shows on. And he put on a good one. Uh, and he was very efficient. Uh, any able-bodied man, black or white, who couldn't pay his fine for being drunk and disorderly, which was usually what it was, oh, had his labor applied to the streets on a chain gang. And uh, President Haddon was very interested in the street paving because having adequately paved streets was crucial for Memphis to remain competitive as a, uh, uh, as a mercantile city uh, for wholesalers and cotton merchants, which was the Memphis economy, essentially. Uh, at any rate, uh, he ran a very entertaining police court. He was very efficient. Uh, the appeal at one point said that uh, one day, one remarkable day, he uh, opened the court at 9 a.m. He had to get downtown to his office in the, um, in the courthouse, which was the old Overton Hotel, uh, to deal with the city debt. <laughs> and so he, he ran a very efficient police court. And one morning, uh, he opened at 9 o'clock court lasted for 50 minutes. He dealt with 33 cases and made $5.50 per minute. <laughs> wow. So tons of power in that position, I would imagine, with tax and all the other things. And so he, he could do pretty much whatever he wanted to do. Yeah, the Legislative Council 
ran the taxing district. And it was made of three fire and police commissioners and five uh, supervisors of public works. The three commissioners were paid for their work. Uh, the president got $2,000 a year, which was a big salary, and he was already a rich man. Um, the other two commissioners who were not president, I think, got $500 a year. The five supervisors donated their services gratis. The reason for commissioners, especially fire and police, we never had a fire and police commissioner ever until Claude Armour that actually knew anything about being a police officer or anything about being a firefighter. Correct. What, what they had was this. I hate to say this. You had to have people that could help fire chiefs with the budget and running their department fiscally so that you were getting the most out of your dollar. And that's not what fire chiefs do, and it's not what firefighters do. It's not what police chiefs do. It's not what police officers do. So they would go out and they would get people that were great businessmen, make them the commissioner, and they would come in and help these departments run their Yeah, and that's business. exactly the way it was. It started in the taxing district uh, years because the taxing district budget was voted on every two years by the state legislature. And the Shelby County delegation would present the taxing district budget, which was usually passed, but always amended by people who had interests. Um, property owners had interests in amending the taxing district budget. Uh, the schools usually suffered, but the school board had interests and often got the taxing district budget amended in Nashville. And um, Haddon was always fighting for the fire and police budget and for paving the streets. He was really big about paving the streets. You know, we had issues with streets. We've had about seven or eight different kinds of pavement over the over the years. And you could you could do a you could do a whole book on. It. Oh, you really could. And and, and Memphis is a. It, the most uh, infamous Memphis paving was the Nicholson woodblock paving, which the uh, city uh, council, the city council before the taxing district was uh, made up of uh, two common councilmen and one alderman from each of the ten city wards. That adds up to 30 men, uh, all elected under the ward system, uh, which is organized about ward politicians uh, in the saloons. Uh, a saloon keeper was sort of a wholesaler of votes uh, in those days and had a lot of political power. And um, uh, they, they floated bond issues uh, to, to pave the streets with this Nicholson paving. Uh, it wasn't such a bad idea. Chicago did it too. Uh, and, you, know, uh, you know, the problem was Chicago didn't have the, the wagons pulling three bales of cotton. And, and, I, and I've, I've alluded to this in a, in a program I did. The average horse puts out a certain amount of excrement in a day, like 30 <laughs> to 40 pounds. That's all I'm told. I'm not a horse person. But we had mules out there, and all this stuff would seep down into that wood, and it would rot. 
Yeah. And then fresh <laughs> mud would be deposited. Anyway, the Nicholson started to fail within a couple of years after it was put down in the mid-60s, I think just after the war. And the, the most hated Memphis creditor was the contractor for the Nicholson paving, a man named uh, Talmadge Brown of Elmira, New York. And uh, the successive mandamuses of Talmadge Brown uh, throughout the 70s, were, he was probably the most hated man uh, in Memphis. And so these days when Memphis citizens, you know, uh, get all high-minded about the Argentines, we ought to think twice and be a little more circumspect because <laughs> it was, it was uh, Memphis, Memphis people were calling the creditors vultures and uh, despoilers of widows and orphans. <laughs> Well, I think we still complain about our streets, uh, even as of today. So, well, so we've moved from the Nicholson. After the Nicholson, we had Telford and Macadam, yes. or Macadam, or however you pronounce it. Does anybody know how you pronounce that? Yeah, I call it Macadam. I it's, think it's Macadam. It, it's yeah. Macadam. What it is is uh, it's like a gravel and a tar yeah. mixed together. And we still together. use the term today with tarmac. Yeah. Yeah. The Mac of tarmac is Macadam. At any rate, all of this was uh, all of this was evolving in the 1880s, and gasoline was an unwanted byproduct, uh, along with asphalt, of the uh, Pennsylvania uh, rock oil industry, which uh, Rockefeller was organizing at this time. So, uh, a real decade of transition. So, we've all read the book, and we all have our favorite stories about it. But Lucius, what's your favorite story in uh, the book? Well, there's so many great stories from this uh, this era, uh, so many unique individuals. Uh, it would have been a fun place to live, uh, aside from the yellow fever and the cholera and the yeah, <laughs> little details like that. Uh, no penicillin, no. Right, yeah. Uh, but uh, I guess the thing that surprised me most uh, was finding out that uh, uh, Memphis's first artesian well was not the one uh, drilled uh, that came in uh, at the Bowling Hughes Machine and Lake Ice Company on St. Patrick's Day, 1887, but rather was the well that uh, James B. Cook supervised for the Memphis Natatorium. Big surprise to me, yeah. and uh, uh, as I've stated elsewhere, uh, it's hard to see something unless you already know what it is. It took a few years to realize that we had this great treasure of artesian water. Yeah. And where was this natatorium? The natatorium uh, was at the corner of uh, 4th Street and Jefferson. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating look into this book. We will link to the book uh, online right now. I'm not sure there's any or uh, any copies of it out there, but we're going to see if we can't remedy that. Uh, and Lucius, I appreciate that. Joe, thanks for being here. And uh, that's it. Thanks. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it.